Yeah. All right. So, Ryan, if The Summer of 69 by Brian Adams came out today, what year would it be? Oh, I have, uh, so I have to figure the summer out of what year. Just take a guess. Have, oh, because I have to figure out what year Summer of '69 was released, right? Yeah. So I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess Summer of '69 was relate was released in like '87. So it would have been. So it would have been. I think. Okay, I was close. You're close. So really, there's only like 15 years there. So if Summer of '69 were released today, it would be like Summer of '04. It's summer of 06, man. Summer of 06. All right. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't a math major. I was a journalism major. I figured out what you were doing, though. But yes, what yes. Was, what was I doing? You were trying to make me feel old. Yeah. You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me as always in Southampton, England is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm good. I got sunburnt. I went outside today. It's, it's the, getting warmer. For the first time since March 2020, I went outside. That's not true. <laughs> I heard you went curling. I did go curling. I went and played in Preston. It was good. It was still, we're still under kind of like modified lockdown rules or social distancing rules. So it was three people per team, uh, six stones per end. Okay. So it was very fast. That's, that's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. I was playing like third, I guess, but I was playing in the middle. And so it didn't really feel like curling. So I'd just like sweep two stones and then I'd throw mm. two stones and then I'd go hold the broom. But it was all right. Did only having six stones per team make teams more likely to draw or more likely to hit? Uh, we started drawing because we were very bad at hitting. <laughs> so then we just, we just, for the last two games, did a modified Wild Amigo where I just drew everything. And that helped me find my draw weight again, which I was, when I started, I wasn't good at anything. But um, so we just drew. Did you uh, you did uh, Howard Howard rules and make it a, a twelve stone twelve rock free guard zone? We basically threw our first five stones. We deliberately called draw. I called it. You have to bleep this out, but I called it old curling. <laughs> but I, I kind of getting up there in age, so <laughs> I'm kind of like I better learn this style of play. I'm getting too old to play the run it up and down game. Uh, I'm probably I'm probably right behind you on that one, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually really easy. You just throw like T weight. And if you want to throw the heat, you throw that hack weight. <laughs> Move a few stones around. It's pretty good. And I'm like, my body could play that forever. <laughs> just going to rearrange things in the house. <laughs> yeah. Delicate tap. And the thing is, if you like mess it up a bit, you're like back eight or something. You're not out of play. So what's the plan today, Ryan? Well, we're getting into summer and you know, Sean Graham from... 
Game of Stones pod calls it summer content, and that's kind of what we've done here today. We do have some news. There is a little. I do want to go over just a little bit of news uh, before we get into what we're actually going to talk about today, which is our curling wish list, and we we're going to break it into three topics. First, will be our wish list for our own curling, which is the curling that we experience uh, actually on the ice. And then our wish list for this podcast going forward as we get into kind of the post-COVID, hopefully post-COVID world. And then our wish list for curling at large, whether it's the competitive game or organizational structure, kind of our wish list for how things should be rearranged since we kind of get to hit the reset button here since we were without curling for, for so long. But there, there has been a little bit of new, a little bit of curling news. Uh, first, we we covered very briefly that the U.S. Nationals were coming up, and those recently ran. Uh, the mixed doubles was won by Chris Plies and Vicky Persinger. The men's national championship was won by Team Corey Dropkin, and the women's national championship was won by Team Corey Christensen. So those are your national champions for the U.S. None of them have earned berths to next year's Worlds. Those will be represented by the winners of the 2022 national championships. However, they have all earned berths into the U.S. Olympic trials. Jonathan, did you get to watch any of the U.S. championships, which were streamed for the first time in a long time on YouTube? I did not. I watched a bit of the World Mixed Doubles, and then um, that's it. So there Sorry. were. I've been getting my life back, so I've been like less time to watch curling, more time to see people. I didn't watch much of it. I watched some, uh, especially when I was at work. Uh, but there, there was there were a little bit of surprises. One was a, a pleasant surprise: how well Team Sinclair played. Uh, it was the first time uh, them playing as a foursome, and they did very well. However, they did drop the championship game to Team Corey Christensen, uh, so that was a that was a pleasant surprise. Uh, surprised that Team Ruinen did not make playoffs on the men's side, and then another surprise on the men's side was that Team Todd Burr. Not just that they didn't do well and didn't make the playoffs, but that they went zero and nine. So that was stunning to me. Um, another pleasant surprise on the men's side was the excellent play of Team Scott Dunham and Team Jed Brundage with uh, Team Brundage making the final uh, against Team Corey Dropkin. So Team Brundage has earned a Olympic trials berth as well. So those were some of the surprising things to come out of there. Uh, probably probably the most surprising was Team Ruinen not making the playoffs. Yeah, uh, I, I guess... I'm going to just throw away everything we watched this season, to be honest. I'm kind of, I think oh, yeah. um, ice access was uneven. We don't know people's personal circumstances. Uh, there wasn't really much of a competitive season. There's been a lot of kind of drawing way too much into what happened. Um, in, in a certain sense, you know, the teams that end up winning these things, they're all good teams. It's not like an undeserving team won it, but um some of the underperformances I'm not going to really put much stock into is what I'd say. Yeah, and really they were I mean they were one game out of a tiebreaker 
for the playoffs uh, team Ruinen was. And that was the thing was a lot of, a lot of people thought that they were just going to run away with that championship. I had a feeling that it was just going to be a cluster. And that's what we saw. We saw three teams tied at six and three and three more teams tied at five and four that very easily could have been uh, in a tiebreaker, but somehow they avoided tiebreakers altogether on both the men's side and the women's side. Yeah, and you know, so it's good. It was good to see, or to kind of for people to kind of get back on the ice, see what some of the new teams how they clicked. Um, I think the next kind of little bit of drama is going to be the short run into the Olympic trials next mm-hmm. year, right? That basically most teams have missed a year to a year and a half of of on ice prep, and it's normally that phase where you're really trying to build. And you want, you're using a lot of those, these teams are using these competitive events to try to put their systems in place and kind of figure mm-hmm. out what's going to work and all that. And they're going to have a very short window to do that over the summer and the, and next year. So I, I think it'll be a little bit chaotic too, to be frank, to be quite frank in the trials next year, basically you're going to have a three month season. You're in the trials. So um, it'll be interesting <laughs> for sure. Uh, we also learned a couple more Olympic teams, although this was not exactly a surprise, was Sweden named its Olympic teams, and shockingly, it's going to be Team Hasselberg and Team Adidas. Yeah, that's not it's not a surprise, and I don't think there'll be any surprise coming out of uh, British curling either. It'll be Moet Team Muirhead, right? So, and obviously Moet Dodd for the mixed doubles. So, yep. And then on the mixed doubles side, it will be the team that represented them at the last Worlds, which is uh, uh, Ericsson and Duval. And then another piece of news that brought a smile to my face, Jonathan, is the Kansas City Curling Club has broken ground on dedicated ice, a club that we know very well. I think we went to, what, five straight uh, five straight barbecue bond spiels when we were living in Oklahoma City, and a lot of great people at Kansas City Curling Club, and I'm really happy to see that they're going to get dedicated ice there. Yeah, that'll be good. That's good. And that's a really interesting location because it's, it's, you can do a drive from there to Denver. You can do a drive from there to the Twin Cities. And you can do a drive from there to Oklahoma City or, or Dallas. It's kind of a, a good spiel spot, I think. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it's a good spiel, period, because they, they know how to host a bond spiel there at Kansas City. I think it's a, you know, the, the people who know, know. And it's a, now that they're about to get dedicated ice, I think it's going to be no longer the best kept secret in bond spieling. I think it's just going to be one of the better bond spiels, period. And it, it's such a, I got to say, like a good spiel is a very simple formula, but it's amazing how few places get it right. But it's basically <laughs> lots of cheap and or free booze and lots of good food, yep. right? It's basically the core of it. And, you know, a few games. A bit of a bit of camaraderie, but that's for like a social yeah. bond spiel. That's that's basically the magic: is good food, good camaraderie, bit of drink to loosen things up, and you're good to go. Yep, and they do a very good job of attempting to schedule their spiel around the Kansas City Royals baseball team schedule. So I can't tell you how many times that I've been knocked out um, late on Saturday night and immediately taken out my phone and bought my tickets for the Sunday afternoon home game for the Royals. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a really nice stadium. I got to say it is. Yeah. It's, it was one of the, it was one of the, originally it was one of those kind of cookie cutter, um, 
cookie cutter stadiums, but they did a very good job with their recent renovation. Well, actually, it's not. I'm shoot. I'm old. Um, it's really not that recent <laughs> anymore. But they did a great job with their renovation about 15 years ago. So it's actually an amazing part to be. Yeah, in the summer of 2006. Is what- yes, <laughs> that's actually. <laughs> Well, actually, yes, <laughs> August of 2006 is exactly what I'm referencing. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want to get into our curling wish lists? Yeah. So curling wish list, and we'll start with our own personal curling, is my wish list is to get to a bond spiel at a club that I've never been to. Uh, the most likely candidate there is going to be Charlotte because it's a pretty easy drive. Um, but uh, another candidate there is probably Atlanta because of the airport and how easy it is to get to Atlanta. Yeah. If, if I were to pick, I would like to go to Switzerland because it's probably, or Sweden. So it's like the two big curling power countries I haven't bond in yet. So that's, that's where I'd like to go. It's either Switzerland or Sweden. It's amazing. Like Europe versus the United States is what you're describing is probably a similar travel time than what I'm talking about. So like, Richmond, Virginia. Oh yeah. In five hours I can be in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you're like, yeah, in five hours I can be in Switzerland. <laughs> I could probably, if there was, I'm not sure if we're going to, I don't know. Our airport went bankrupt early on in COVID. So I'm not sure what the state of Southampton flights are these days, but there is a flight Southampton to Geneva in, or was in the before times uh, for during ski season. I think that's about a two and a half hour flight. So yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy to to think about. Yeah, a little bit of a difference there between Geneva, Switzerland, and Charlotte, but not nothing against Charlotte. I actually like Charlotte a lot. So I, I mine, I guess, are all about how the game can. I think it's a constant theme on our podcast, so it shouldn't be that surprising. But how the game can do a better job of linking the grassroots to the high performance, and so. For okay. me, my kind of local, my read. This is kind of British Europe specific. Is a lot of the local events are not well linked into the world team ranking system. So I'll pick on one tour that's local to it, but they have events that I play in. So it's like the Scottish curling tour and it's, it's a tour. You earn points, you pay an entry fee. The cash payouts are there. I think it's maybe 600 pounds for the winning teams. So it's not a huge cash pay. The entry fee is not that much either. It's only 200 pounds. It's actually got a lot of, kind of the, the kind of curlers you'd want. So basically a, a lot of the kind of upper echelon junior teams or people just out of juniors, some of the kind of local competitive teams that aren't kind of don't have the funding to kind of travel around the world. So it, it's a, a decent standard, not, not amazing, but you know, like, uh, like Bruce Mewitt was playing on this thing three, four years ago <laughs> when I first got here, like uh, I ran into Dave Murdoch when he was still playing. Right, so like like, like the top tier Scottish teams would play in these events. They would they'd be kind of like maybe stepping down or filling in their schedule. But you'd also have like another other like the Welsh men's team playing this. Most of the English competitive teams, some of the other Scottish kind of next tier down teams playing it on the both the men's and the women's side. But what's weird about it is the points you earn there don't feed into the world team ranking, Uh, and I think that's actually a really big problem because it. If you're if you're say just out of juniors and you want to try to get on a top competitive team or you want to try and get picked up by a high performance program, just going out and getting points helps build your resume, right? And I, I kind of think that a really simple thing they could do is is set it up so they're getting world curling tours, and this would kind of build depth 
think we talked with Jerry last summer. One of his points is you really have to build, if you want to build depth, you have to have events that are close to home, right? So someone Mm -hmm. who's kind of interested in competitive curling, they don't want to start flying to Korea to earn their points. They want events they can play in while they have a regular job that they can play in kind of like Friday, Saturday, Sunday with their team, four or five of those a season, relatively affordable, not a huge travel budget. And so kind of just integrating that. So maybe it's the lowest tier in the competitive pyramid, but just letting those events accumulate points so you can kind of get some standing and some ranking on the world team. I think the same for Europe. It's all over the map what gets counted for points and what doesn't. I think that's partly... I think I think kind of Jerry was hinting that he wants to try and work on that, but you know, there's some things that are advertised themselves as cash spiels, and you go there, you play, and it doesn't connect in. Other things you get points in for reasons that aren't really clear, but they kind of just appear on curling zone. I think this kind of requires a bit more effort from the local organizers, and also I think some of the European national governing bodies need to be a bit more on this and realize that just simply linking those events into the system kind of creates a pathway is kind of important. And then the other thing is we need a better delineation between competitive bond spiels and social bond spiels. So like what I mean by that is if I'm playing in a bond spiel, like the, the Kansas City bond spiel, I don't care about the prize. I obviously don't want points. I just want to go on that with my friends. But to make it worth my time, I want to have a good time. And I think some spiels kind of fall, they end up falling in this weird middle space where they maybe have some social activity, some competitive activity, and you're not really sure what's what. But I think Mm -hmm. a really good formula for a social spiel is some kind of group activity on the Friday and Saturday night, some cash prizes that are donated, you know, it's not cash prizes, but prizes that are donated. But most of the entry goes towards the social side. And it's structured in such a way that most teams end up with something, right? So the Kansas City bond spiel, you can lose your first two games, fall down to the D bracket, you know, win three games against not super strong teams, or even win two games and come home with a prize, right? So you can go two and three. The prize, but it's not like, maybe it's a six pack, right? (laughs) Or something. Yeah, there it's usually barbecue sauce. Or barbecue sauce. It's like, but you're like, hey, I I got five games in. (laughs) I want a prize. Had two good, had two good meals on Friday, Saturday night. You know, drank a bit too much. Had a good time. That's all you want, right? Met some new people, had a few good laughs. Maybe got to a ball game. Like there's like this stuff built around it, and then it's worth your time for having fun. And then the competitive stuff needs to be set up more for competition. And so here, there's some weird. Like so, the Scottish Curling Tour half their events use this Schenkel system, which is like points based. I'm not going to explain it because it's too complicated. But that's actually really okay. What I'm going to explain is that it's very bad from a, building a competitive curling standpoint because the strategy of the Schenkel is different from conventional curling. And so if you've got a team that's in their early 20s playing Schenkel curling, it's going to build very bad habits compared to the, the strategy you're going to need. And the shot selection you're going to need to be playing kind of um, the, the competitive needs to kind of have more cash to kind of get the good teams entering it. But the clubs then should try to build the event up as a spectator event or the ranks should, right? They should make money off tickets possibly or try to get sponsorship to underwrite the cash prize and get the bar and restaurant revenue from spectators to try to, to kind of use that to underwrite. The and so I think that's what I like to see in Europe is a bit more differentiation between those two kinds of events. And then a bit more effort by ranks to host maybe one social spiel, which is friendly. You're making a lot of money off the entry fee and the bar and the social life. And one competitive bond spiel a year 
which kind of earns points in the world curling to team rankings and kind of can build up that lowest tier of kind of competitive. So you have curled in Canada and the US and Europe is what you're describing much more of a European problem because have, as someone who's only curled in the United States, I can tell you we don't have that problem. Like you know what the social spiels are and you know what the competitive spiels are pretty easily here. Is there just too much gray area in Europe? Yeah, I think I think it's a bit more gray area. I think maybe it's just specifically Scottish. Um, but I think even across Europe, it's a little bit, it's still a bit mixed and not delineated unless it starts kicking into like high tier, the the master's level, right? So here the, the master's is supposed to be the highest tier level. And then below that, it gets a bit confusing what's what. Um, so I kind of, you know, basically what you, ideally what you'd have is like a regional tour in each curling country or region, and then kind of a, a, a European, North American, and Asian kind of tour for the kind of next tier up, then the slams for kind of the hyper elites. That would be kind of the ideal, ideal pyramid. And it kind of feels to me the lowest tier is where things are still pretty splotchy all over the place, actually. How would that also help teams like the junior team that you coach in England? Like you, you have kind of emerging nations there with Ireland, Wales, and England. Would it help to have a spiel like that where the juniors can go and you know, the first couple times they go there, they're going to get their teeth knocked in. But maybe the third and fourth time that they go, they're starting to actually accumulate some points. And then once they age out of juniors, they've got a little bit of points in their pocket when they start getting to the more competitive events. Yeah, exactly. For them, or I think that I think the big place where we seem to lose people from the sport is actually just after juniors. That there's mm-hmm. a there's a big gap there, right? And if somebody's not, if somebody hasn't won something big like a Canadian national championship, a U.S. national championship or a world medal. Um, it's hard for that person who maybe likes curling to get on a, like, you know, like the, like the, the Matt Dunstones of the world, they're going to be fine, right? They're going to get picked yeah. up or they're going to form their own team. But what about the team that's one or two tiers down below that who Dunstone beats? If they, the message is there's nothing for you in curling now that you're, <laughs> now that your junior days are done, that person's going to go find something else. And that's a bit bonkers for a sport that's supposed to be a lifetime sport, right? That we mm-hmm. really lose a lot of people early 20s. And I think it's partly, it's, there's not really a place for them to kind of cut their teeth. And it's partly, um, there just isn't something that's close and local and affordable. That a lot of the effort in the last decade has gone to the high-end stuff. And there hasn't been as, and a lot of the, the local stuff is hollowed out as a consequence. Yeah, and that's why it's good to see like the U.S. starting their U25 program because you know this was something that Stephanie Seneker actually mentioned when we talked to her about three years ago on this podcast was you know she didn't really pick up curling until her early 20s and what she ran into was because she didn't play in juniors she didn't have the connections in order to land on a team like yeah. that so that's kind of what held her back a little bit was you know you you learn, you get your connections in juniors and then that's who you, you know, when you're looking for a team, you start ringing people up that you played with or against in juniors saying, Hey, do you have a spot on a team I can play with once you age out? Yeah. I think that's, that's, we're actually missing a trick there too, right? That actually a lot of people, maybe they play other sports at a pretty high level up through the end of college or university. And that's actually a great place to pick up someone who's athletic. And they can probably pick up curling fairly quickly and kind of get on the competitive side pretty quickly if there's something there for them. But if it's, it, it is starting to get that way that if you didn't win a world medal when you're, 
1920, <laughs> the competitive side has nothing for you, right? Like the high performance programs are probably not going to take a look at you because there's only so many slots there. And then, so then what do you do for that next group that you don't lose? All right. So my next, next on my wish list for kind of hour curling, and it kind of goes more so, I mean, maybe not hyper local, but more so like USA curling is, uh, or really North American curling is that we don't lose the momentum that we've had in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the sport. Uh, it's very good to see some of the resources that Curling Canada has recently produced and released. And I know for a fact that uh, those are coming for USA Curling and that they're going to roll out their Icebreakers program this fall and they're going to have some more resources for clubs to use. So uh, Deb Martin and her team are doing a very good job of moving this along and they're going to have stuff for, for everybody in the fall once uh, clubs start reopening for the 2021-2022 season. And uh, just hoping that it that once that season starts that – you know, we, we focus on not losing that momentum, um, you know, just because we're so happy that the clubs are open again and we're playing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It, it's um, It's been a, a hot topic during lockdown, but and really with r- most rinks and clubs closed for the last year and a half, it's been hard to implement. And so mm-hmm. my big worry has been that, that maybe, maybe people feel like the moment's passed, but it can't be passed. It's really got to be kind of built in starting when things open up again in the autumn. And I know we have good people at Curling Canada and at USA Curling that are working very hard to make sure that the moment has not passed. So uh, looking forward to seeing that and just I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about this one on my wish list. That's good. It's good to have some optimism these days. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have anything else? Like, Do you have anything on, on like your bucket list or like for you competitively that you're hoping to accomplish? So I'll, I'll give you one. Cause I've actually yeah. thought about this now that I'm an old, um, you know, I'm 37 now. Um, so it's fun to kind of think this far in the future, but like, so I, I've, I've kind of determined that, you know, like my best chance for doing something competitively in curling is going to be like once I'm a senior, which is actually only 13 years from now, if you think about that, because it's <laughs> uh, kind of crazy. I think my, I think my birthday is actually closer to world war two than today. So it's good to think about that. But like, yeah, my goal is to play in a U.S. senior championship. And I'm saying that as someone who's 13 years from being eligible for that, but that is now my, that is my new competitive goal for curling. That's I am amazed at how many people plan seniors out very far ahead of time. I have been I've already been asked for three seniors teams. The first was when I was forty. I was like, yes. whoa! I was like, whoa, whoa! Let's, uh, let's slow down there. Um, I I mean I, I mean well I've gone one and four in English national championships. So like, playing in a worlds was great fun. I would love to. There's a bit of, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that the last thing I did was before lockdown was lose two national champions. Uh, and I've just been stewing at home. But you were in <laughs> 18 them. months about them and haven't had a chance to do much curling in between. So it'd be nice to get some stuff done on that side, I think. But also, I mean, I kind of vacillate back and forth. So I'm like, well, it'd be great. But I, I, it, oddly, I'm like, well, I've already played in a world championship and that was fun. 
Um, so if it didn't happen, I'm also kind of became philosophical about it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like I basically, I came out like, yeah, I'll take another run at it, but I'm also less like amped up about it. If that makes sense. What about on the coaching side? Like, do you have any coaching goals? Uh, well, Felix ages out this year. (laughs) Not that I'm counting down the days or something, but, um, (laughs) yeah, that was another, that that was another piece of news was they announced that you're going back to kiss a Calio. Yeah, that is true. One last time in Kisakalia. I mean, that's that's for that group. It's their last year, and that will be my seventh year, eighth year, seventh year, I guess. I guess six because one was canceled with uh, lockdown. Yeah. But I don't know. After that, I'm not sure. Like, I, I honestly like, like half the team will age out, and then we'll just sit down and have a chat. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I can't. I I don't know. I don't have like another clear project from there. If that makes sense, though. If something came along, I'd be open to listening to it. But I don't. You know, I I kind of got into that just because the rink manager asked me to, and it's it's been a great great trip and a lot of fun. And I think obviously we'd like to try to get to the World A's this year. Um, so that's kind of the team goal. I think that's that's pretty clear. Um, but yeah, honestly, after that, I don't have any goals. Maybe coach you in the seniors in uh, thirteen years. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sign you up. All right. Or you can just move back here and play. I could move to yeah. I could move back. Sure. If, uh, anyone's hiring political theorists. Sure. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Do you have any goals for this podcast? Uh, or a wish list for this podcast? I I don't. You know, I I I wanted to hit two thousand downloads in a month, and we did in lockdown. And I was really happy with that. And then we stopped making episodes. So maybe we kind of like, we need a new goal. Yeah, we do. 8,000 downloads <laughs> in one month. Huh? 8,000 8, downloads in one month. Just That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what we should be doing. I kind of like, what do you think we should be doing? We should get, like, we should ask our fans to like, tell us what we should be doing. I, mean, I think so, I actually liked, I'll just say this. Like to me, the podcast was like a great mental health thing to pull that pulled me through. Some very bad dark oh God, times because yeah. there was there's not much to do and there were some we were full lockdown here and there were some long stretches where the only mm-hmm. other human I saw was my wife for like weeks on end. Uh, so it was great just doing episodes and chatting with you and chatting with our guests and staying in touch with curling when we couldn't play. So like that that's like nothing else. Like if I get nothing else from this podcast, that that was a lot on oh, a yeah. personal side. So. Oh yeah, same here, man. Like. One year ago, was in lockdown. At the time, I had a job that I absolutely just despised. And so every day sucked. But then every now and then, I got to sit down and talk about curling. That was pretty good. That got me through a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I guess guess we we got an Olympic year coming up, so we got to think about how we're going to handle that. Yeah, I think we have some ideas. And that'll be a quad. Then we'll have done a full quad with the podcast. I know that, yeah, we've got, to, I think we have some good ideas. So yeah, my kind of my wish list is to actually sit down and do those when I'm motivated, which <laughs> lately has not been the case, but, uh, so I have to work on that. I think, so here's, here's my wish list and it kind of goes against your, your, your downloads goal because it goes against what I notice when I look at the stats. Uh, <laughs> I actually, my wish list is to not do any like previews. Oh, of events and stuff. Yeah, because I I hate them. I hate doing them. I hate researching them, especially for like the Briar and Scotties, because it's like 
everybody does a Briar and Scotty's preview, and I feel like we're not actually saying anything new. Like, I think our best episodes are when we bring stories from curling or from parts of the world that people don't know about. Like, I think that's when we're at our best. And I think that's why we were, we were kind of at our best during lockdown when no actual curling was going on. And we were interviewing people who were trying to do different things here in the U S and try to do different things around the world. And we were able to bring some, some really cool stories to light. Like, I think that's when we're at our, our best. I don't think that I'm at my best when we're trying to get through a Scotty's preview just because we know it'll do numbers. Yeah, I don't I don't care one way or the other. Maybe we should maybe we should ask our fans <laughs> what they think too. I know I know that sometimes when we don't drop one right away, we we get a little social media where's your preview question. So yeah. I do, I do know that I do know that some people like that and wait for it. Um you know, I think I think part of it's we've, I, I do think in a certain sense we kind of found our voice by like not being able to do by like what the kind of by rote stuff is. We kind of had to figure out okay, what are we going to talk about if there's no curling? And um, yeah, I, my favorite stuff is when I talk to someone about something I don't know. Whether it's a part what curling's like in a part of the world I don't know. Whether it's talking to an ice maker about like what I don't know about making curling ice. When I personally learn something, I I kind of find value in that, and I hope that. If I'm learning something, the listeners are too. I like stuff that's evergreen. I don't like stuff that we release it and then four days later, it it has no value because the event has started. Yeah, I mean, I'm fine either way. I can I can talk curling stuff. I I find it easier personally to talk after the event or after I've watched the curling. I kind of find the um the previews are a bit mm-hmm. be especially this year. It was just blind guessing. Like <laughs> like we we hadn't seen anyone play, so it was just blind guess how people are going to do right. Uh, and also I just hate predictions. Like, you know, people ask me, but I just like, I don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's why if I knew what was going to happen, why would I watch? Right. It's only because I don't know what's going to happen that watching a sporting event's interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we are going to do a series of Olympic episodes before the Beijing games, but I think we're going to do them in a way that will be more interesting than just breaking down the team. So I think, I think that that's kind of the direction to go is not necessarily look at, not necessarily look at it as previewing the teams but maybe how the event fits into the larger story of curling which I which is one of the reasons why I love the worlds is you get to talk about what different countries are doing um which is what, you know, like this year with Estonia getting into the women's field and getting to talk about how Estonia has grown as a curling nation to the point where they finally got a team into a men's or women's uh, national championship this year. Like those are the kinds of things I like focusing on when we preview, uh, when we actually do preview events. Yeah. Or, I mean, there's some, to me, like the Czech Republic or Czechia getting mm-hmm. into the Olympics, right? They've been close several times. They've Very been like close. the last team out a couple of times. So for them to finally qualify a team for the Olympics is a very big deal for them. And it was great to see for the sport too. Yeah. And hopefully it helps grow the sport there in the Czech Republic. Like that's, that's a, to me, that's a better episode is having, you know, getting someone from Czechia on the show and saying, okay, you, how were you able to leverage being in the Olympics when they're actually in the Olympics? Because, you know, you've talked about several times on this show, Jonathan, um, about how mixed doubles is the way to grow the sport. So that'll be interesting to see in, you know, April of next year is 
how was Czechia able to use being in the mixed doubles tournament to how were they able to use that to grow the sport there? Yeah. 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 It'd be interesting to see. So this one is kind of far fetched. I would like to work with someone else in curling to kind of collaborate with them to do something for an emerging team. So like you've, you've told me before how much it costs for your junior team to buy its uniforms every year and how kind of the, the rules that the World Curling Federation has set in place kind of makes it very expensive for some countries that don't have any money. I'd like to eventually get to a point where, you know, if we're making any cash off of like any um, hype, any hypothetical like merchandise sales or whatever that we could team with someone to maybe provide uniforms for an emerging nation's junior team so that they don't have to pay the money to do that. You know, that's the kind of thing that I would like to do. So some way to kind of use the podcast to help promote a grassroots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of ways we could do that. Um, we could think about that. Or, or, you know, or use, you know, the coaching knowledge you have or the marketing knowledge that, that I have from, from my career uh, to help an emerging club or an emerging nation, uh, you know, to help them figure out a way to, to, to grow the sport where they are. Cause that's the thing is like, um, like there's one federation that is big on asking for money. And so I, I know that they've asked me for money before to try and help grow their, um, grow their federation. Well, I don't really have money, but what I do have is, is, is time and knowledge. And hmm. I did, you know, if, if anyone out there like wants someone to take a look at their messaging or take a look at the way that they're asking for, for fundraising, you know, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to help in that way. But, um, I have a, I have, I have a two-year-old who eats a lot. Um, like today he asked for, today he basically had two lunches because he just kept asking for more food. So the actual cash part, I probably can't help with unless we, I don't know, unless we start selling sweatshirts or something. I know that, I know that, that, that Sean and Scott do a good job of helping food banks Canada with theirs. So, you know, if we, if we're able to do something like that, then, then we could use that money to help fund, uh, fund an emerging nation or an emerging team. But um, I definitely have knowledge that I'd love to share that if, if anyone wants, wants help with that, I'm definitely willing to help that way. <laughs> All right. So what, what are we doing? Are we putting a call out for team? And then we have to figure out what we're offering. Like, I, I guess it's like, kind of like, we're obviously not talking about the high end, high performance no. countries, but there's a lot of teams and countries in the world B's or C's, right. That, that have aspirations and maybe they're looking for support. So yeah. you've got Ryan, who's got a marketing background and it's really good on that end, I'd say. And I've got, I've got a level two coaching and you know, now I've played and I've coached in five international events and kind of have a fairly solid, solid technical understanding. If I don't know it, I know a lot of way better coaches than me that have always been kind of helpful for, for offering advice too. So I can, I often do kind of pull in advice from other places. So that's, that's the resource we can offer. You also, you, you also have this knowledge, which we've, we've kind of hinted at before, but never really gotten into the, the weeds with, but you have the knowledge required to help navigate some WCF BS. <laughs> like if you ever need any yes. help doing that. <laughs> <you can talk laughs> 
I've I've sat on a lot of boards. I've been to a lot of board meetings. That's right. Um, I also I will say there's a reason I I once I started coaching I'm like coaching's a way more rewarding way to give back to the sport than sitting in board meetings. I gotta I can, say. Oh man, I can imagine. Right, and, and so for so I kind of think that like that's that's my that's where I'm putting my energy. But I can advise on the the board stuff. All right, and speaking of emerging nations, we'll get into our wish list for curling at large for whether it's competitive or organizations or just stuff we'd like to see. I have a couple of them. Uh, The first one that I have is I would like to see an emerging nations championship or festival. And I think the trickiest thing there is how do you define an emerging nation? I'd probably say a nation that's never been to a world, whether it be it men's or women's or you know mixed doubles it used to be you just signed up and you got to go so you can't use that as your qualifier i would say if a country has never qualified for a men's worlds or a women's worlds um or they they've only been around for 10 years that they qualify as an emerging nation uh so i'd like to see an, a, a championship just for them or even a, a, a an emerging nations festival because a lot with a lot of these countries they have players that are based in Canada, basically based in North America, but they represent they represent the country of their heritage. It would be very easy to run a camp or a festival or a championship in North America for just these countries and really cut down on their travel costs. Now, if they want to spend the money to go across the world to compete in the Pacific Asia Championships, that's one thing. But the, the, running a championship like this is a great way to cut down on their travel costs and get them um, experience in a WCF event with WCF rocks against countries that are kind of at their level. And I think that that would be a very good way um, to get to get better experience for these countries. And then two, if you web stream it, you can get basically game footage for them. Because I heard TJ Cole say this on a webinar that the Global Initiative for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Curling ran um, about developing nations was when they've gone out for fun, when they've gone out and asked for funding, some of the response that they've gotten back is, you know, I Googled and I couldn't find you. I don't think that you actually exist. And because they could find footage of Japan playing Korea at the Pacific Asia Championships, but they couldn't find any video of Nigeria playing in a game um, on the, on the, uh, the YouTube archive for the WCF. So I think that that would help solve that particular issue as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, that speaks back to you on the marketing end. There's got to be ways to create web streams for emerging events in which emerging countries are, are playing in, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an easy fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's kind of a simple, simple problem that could have a lot of payback, payoff. Do you, I, I kind of went to town on this section. <laughs> yeah, you did. You have a lot. Do you want me to just give? Do you want me to just give my next one so that you can then rant for about thirty minutes, or do you want to rant sure. for thirty minutes? Okay. Yeah. What, okay. <laughs> my other, uh, my other wish is for a curling winter classic. You know, every year the NHL plays an outdoor game um, on New Year's Day. And I would like to see kind of an out. I would like to see an outdoor game for curling, whether it's like Schuster versus Cooey or what have you. It'd be great to get two 
two kind of TV teams playing on outdoor ice because I find I find the skins game really boring. But I think that if you put something like that, a made-for-TV event outdoors, I think that that would be a lot more interesting and it might catch a lot more eyes. I know that you know I during the regular season I don't watch a lot of NHL. I watch a lot of NHL in the playoffs, and I also watch it. I also watch the Winter Classic. Uh, so I think that you could get some non-curling eyes on that event. Uh, you could even go all out and bring back corn brooms since it's outside and it doesn't really matter that much <laughs> anyway. But I want to see I want to see John Schuster in a in a sweater in an old sweater from the fifties and a toque with a corn broom. Is that's a, that's what I want to see? You could probably do that. Duluth is cold enough. You could probably do it in Duluth. You could even do you could even just do mixed. And just have the the back end for a men's team and the back end for a women's team um, as a mixed team. Yeah, <laughs> I think it'd, it'd be that'd be a good made for TV thing. I think they should maybe skins game or something, something fun. The ice conditions might be atrocious. I've got to say, the, the two yeah. times I played outside, it was it was brutal. <laughs> well, the ice condi- the ice conditions are bad at the Winter Classic, but most people yeah. don't. Most people don't care or notice like the only people that notice are like the hardcore curling people like there's 40,000 curlers in the u.s if only the 40,000 curlers watched an event that television show would get canceled yeah (laughs) yeah i just think it's like the winter classic and you can still score goals it's like is it great if like every rock is a hog rock um because <laughs> that could happen in an outdoor an outdoor event even with kevin cooey throwing kevin cooey true. <laughs> it's not a perfect idea by any means like i said that's why this is a wish list and not <laughs> not a it demand. would be it would be a feat i think it'd be i'd be i'd be curious to see them try it for could you do it in winnipeg is it cold enough i mean yeah you can just there's places that are it's cold enough i think you just seek elevation right um, I don't think that's, I mean, cause I think the issue is not, is it cold enough? Cause you can, you can put it's be cold, it's artificial be cold ice, dry, right? Well, you can put artificial ice anywhere, even above freezing. That's not, that's not the issue, right? The issue is how does the outside elements affect the top of the planks? That's, that's the issue. How does the sun coming down or do you do it at night? Right. It's like those kinds of things are going to be a trick. We'll have to get Jamie Danbrook back on to talk about how possible this idea is. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Jonathan, do your thing. All right. I got I got five. Well, four, I guess now. All right. One, one we may make an episode out of this because there's been a lot. Of, I, I will say this. There's been a lot of talk in lockdown about fixing certain events, <laughs> which I'll rename nameless. And actually the events that I think are the biggest problem are the other events, which are the slams. And I, oh. I think, speaking here as a fan, and I think that there's a bunch of problems with the slams that really need to, right? So from my and, end, it's basically impossible to distinguish between the events. They, they have yes. different names, but I can't tell the difference between the Challenger and the Champions Cup <laughs> and the Players' Championship. So that they really need to define the season. I think they actually did have a clear definition of the season. They just went and messed it up. Like, cause the, the end was always the players championship. And then when they put it in Toronto, that kind of gave it a master's kind of feel like this is mm-hmm. the end of the season. It's the best teams, great venue. Everyone, then, then they added this champions cup, which doesn't make any sense. Um, 
They finally got rid of the Elite 10, much to Sean Graham's <laughs> relief. Um, but like the one thing the about the Elite 10 was at least it was a different format. And exactly. so the other ones, it's like they changed the rules a bit. There needs to be a clearer thing to fix there. The other thing is like the that each tournament kind of seems easy to win to me. Like basically half the field qualifies. Like it's easy to win if you're at that level. Obviously, you and I are not going to go in and win it. But if <laughs> but if you're if you're a slam level team, it's like it's basically who got hot on Sunday, right? Because half the half the field, sometimes even more, qualifies, and then you just win three straight in a knockout, right? Something about the playoffs needs to be defined to make it a bit more challenging, I think. And also the other thing is there's not that much risk for teams that kind of suck at it because they can still accumulate points, mm-hmm. right? You got a lot of points you're playing in a slam. So what I'd like to see is basically a better definition of the season. So keep the players championship, the final event and make it like tennis, right? The, the end of year, the world tennis tour championship, right? Where the top 18, so eight teams only qualify based off their record at the other slam events throughout the season. So you, it's basically... The harder you basically got to qualify out of the other slams into that event, two pools of four, round robin, round robin, and then some kind of crossover knockout system with a page or something for the top two teams. So make it tough, right? And then the Please second explore, part of, wait, 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 no time. Out. What? Huh? So you've gone from too many teams make the playoffs to now you've got four teams in a field of eight making a playoffs. Well, so you have to qualify out of the slams to the top eight. Okay. And then two pools of three, top two from that pool. Then it's a page. If you win, you're one, two. If you're bottom, you're three. Why not just do a full seven-game round robin and then just have the top two teams play? You could do that too. Full game, seven round robin, and like two, top uh, three, two plays, two, two plays, three, and one in the final or something. You could do something, just something like that where it's a bit more interesting depending on how many games it's, right? Um the other thing I'd like to see is a bit more promotion and relegation. Like right now, as you, it's basically how you qualify based on points throughout the season. I'd like to make it, and I think I think actually the, the the elite teams would like this too. Is basically twelve teams each season are guaranteed berths into all the slams. So basically, it's like the PGA Tour card, and then four spots at each tournament, except for the Players Championship, is filled through some combination of points rankings and play-in tournaments. Right, like I, like I, I know some of these places sometimes ran play-in tournaments. In when I was in Victoria, this is way back in the summer of 2006 again. <laughs> but way back then, they had this, they had this bond spiel there called the Bear Mountain, and this back then it had like, like all the top teams came to that because they ran it at a good time of season. But what they did is the Victoria Curling Club ran a cash spiel for the local competitive teams, and like 16 signed up. And first prize was an entry into that event. So basically, if you won the bond spiel, you'd get a chance. And they say, and the other thing is, you could pick who you played first. If you wanted to play Kevin Martin, your first game was against Kevin Martin, right? And a whole, and basically, it was two hundred bucks, and you're playing all the other local competitive teams, so you felt comfortable in that tier. And if you won, great. And if you lost, okay, it was only two hundred bucks as opposed to two thousand entry fee. So. I'd like to see that maybe also is like when it's hosted somewhere, have a local plan or a regional qualifier that gets one team in. Like the Monday qualifier. Like, yeah. yeah. Like with the PGA, you have the Monday qualifier. Yeah. Something like that to kind of let another path in. And then also, you know, you can have your sponsors exemptions or whatever to fill out the next four to six spots, but basically 12 teams locked in each season, but 
if if you don't qualify to that final eight, then you're knocked into a, a another qualifying tournament for four for the final four cards each year. So if you have an off season, you've got to do something to kind of earn your card back, kind of like Q school and golf, right? I, I I do really like this idea, but the the coming players association will never allow this to happen. Why not? Why do you think that, why do you think they'll like it? Because the top teams want all the money, and the top teams yeah. are going to be the ones making the rules. And, and so they, and so part. I think that's kind of why the slams suck, right? Is because they'll make the rules, and they yep. don't want that downside risk, right? But Correct. I think a little downside risk and a path in would make it a bit more interesting. Yeah, they don't want the up and comers taking their money, and so yeah. they're gonna they're gonna make the rules to where those up and comers can't take their money. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Idea number two. So I think a big problem in curling that we don't talk about is that fans actually like cheering for laundry, but players want to play for themselves. And I think that's, if I have to boil down the current problem, that's what the current problem is, is that the top teams want to play for themselves, but fans actually want to cheer for laundry, by which I mean they want to cheer for a country, a province, some kind of identity, right? So people tend to cheer for places they have ties to. Is this a stupid thing? Yes. <laughs> right? Like, I pro- if I was being rational, I would cheer for the people I've met in curling who I like, and that would mean I would be cheering for different teams each week, just depending on who's playing where. But no, I cheer for Canada or you or I cheer for whatever when I'm cheering for whatever, right? Okay. You cheer for Quebec. I cheer for Quebec. I always cheer for Quebec. Um, <laughs> problem. So the problem is... 80% of the teams of the season is teams playing in events as teams. So it's Gushu, Hasselberg, Kim, etc. Then maybe they become the national team for Worlds, Provincials, Scotties, Briar, and they go back to being those individual teams again, right? And so this seems like a weird thing is that I can't think of another sport where the team identity switches from like laundry to place for just one event a season and the rest of the season they're they're just kind of rooting for them, right? So it seems to be curling's torn between the golf tennis model where you cheer for you cheer for the individual mm-hmm. and then the team sports kind of franchise or club model where you cheer for a club or an entity, right? And I actually think the club franchise model is better for the sport long term in terms of fans, in terms of sponsorship, in terms of funding, right? And perhaps even in terms of running those teams. That I think there's some evidence this year that the, the national programs that select the teams and coach them and support them full-time did better than the kind of trial play-down teams, right? A, a small sample size, admittedly, but it certainly seems like things are heading in that di- direction. So my proposal is what I call rebuild the pyramid. And so by this, I mean that if you're Team Canada, you play as Team Canada in everything for the next season until the end of the Scotties. Same for Team GB, Team Sweden, etc. So in Canada, if you aren't Team Canada, what do you do? Well, if you won the province the previous year, then you get to wear the province's jersey and you get support from that member association and funding, etc. for that season. And the member association can sell that team as their kind of professional club and get fundraising and sponsorship and run events around them, right? And then if you're not, if you're not in the province, what do you do? Well, if you're not in a province, then you represent a club. And this is actually where I think curling can do a lot of filling in, right? Because actually, 
even if some clubs have multiple teams playing down competitively, there's a lot of clubs that don't, or maybe they only have one or two players. And so as evidence for that, right, how many clubs in the U.S. now, about 140? I believe so, yes. And how many teams entered playdowns for the U.S. National Championship? 25. 25, right? So that's like 115, 120 clubs that could potentially sponsor teams. Right. And think and you think about what a club gets out of that. If they have a team that's going far, they can fundraise for that team. They can kind of take on the identity of that team. They can set up that structure. So my proposal would be for the playdown structure. You rebuild it by each club gets one berth in some kind of playdown structure. So it's like the old days. And they can here's the thing, they can sign whoever they want. So if you're at a rich club, you got a bunch of rich members, and they want to kind of be like boosters in football. And they want to go sign Chelsea Carey because she's a free agent. <laughs> you can go sign Chelsea Carey. She's a free agent. She can play on your women's team. And then she has to rep- She represents that club for that season, right? And then if they win the provincial, the provincial association gives a transfer fee, right? And so you can kind of base it and you can do this kind of transfer fee system. You can do it in juniors too. So the clubs get money if they produce good players who get picked up at the next level. Clubs have an incentive for trying to develop some competitive players at their club. And the members in the club get stake in terms of here's a local club I can cheer for in these competitions and follow them as they kind of go up the pyramid. What do you think of this? So what you've described, well, it's two things. First, with like a team being Team Canada for the, the entire season, you've, you've described what Korea currently does. They play, they run their nationals in the sun, in, our, in, in summer. And then the winner of that nationals is the is Team Korea and gets all the Team Korea funding until the next nationals, the next summer. So they go, they play in the PACCs, they play in Worlds, they play in the World Qualification Event, what have you. So that that is a model that has been done, and it's working fairly well for Korea right now. Then what you've described with you know the clubs trying to build up and produce players. You know, Jeff Plush, the new CEO of USA Curling, said when he came on our show that he was trying to look for ideas from, because he's, he's a soccer guy, global football. He said he's trying to look for ideas um, in terms of creating a talent pipeline that is similar to global football. And what you've described is basically what global football does, is the, the, the clubs at the grassroots are producing players and they get compensated if that player winds up becoming uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. So there's, there's a little bit of financial incentive. And I think the bigger thing is the clubs have an identity too, right? So obviously your Tuesday night curler doesn't, you know, doesn't harbor ambitions of kind of going to play in the briar. But if like the, the club is producing good competitive players and can support one team in each category for a play down and provide them support for that, maybe fundraise around it, you know, help support them that way. The club then has like a direct stake in how well that team does. Yeah, not every, I mean, not every club is is able to do that financially, but you do see, you know, there's a, a relatively newer club in Michigan. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Leela Now Curling Club uh, in Michigan. They actually sponsor, were one of the main sponsors of Team Sinclair this year when they went and played at, at U.S. National. Yeah, and before, didn't, didn't Jamie Sinclair have a partnership with Charleston for a while? Charleston Curling Club for a while? Or? Charlotte. Charlotte. Okay, Charlotte. Yeah. yeah. So 
Um, you can you can kind of see the model. And there's other ways to do it too, right? If you've got like one of these 20 somethings who's just out of juniors, maybe maybe the club supports them on their team, but they also give them a job as the bartender or the club, you know, assistant club manager or ice tech or something. So there's, there's other ways to support these kinds of players. I, I think I would have more of an idea of, of how clubs could do that if I was a member of a club with dedicated ice, but as someone who has only been a member of an arena club that has access to ice once a week, um, I probably don't have much to add in terms of some like ridiculous insight into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. My next idea. I, th- I actually like the world mixed doubles format a lot. And I think that I should do that in the men's and women's. So what I mean by that is two pools, somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10 teams. Um, so you, you're playing, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to nine games in the round robin with a playoff system. And then you also have a relegation playoff where the bottom four teams are relegated down to a B pool. And in the mixed doubles, then there's like a large, basically mixed doubles B and the win- and they'll run that sometime in the autumn. And the winners of that will have to go back up to the mixed doubles A. And this, I think would, this would replace the Asia Pacific and European championships with some kind, I would cap it at 24 team world B and then a world C for emerging countries. And so that would give you, you know, 24 teams. So some in the neighborhood of 12 to 16 teams in the A's plus 20 teams. So the top 30 countries in the world would be in the A, bouncing between the A and the B pool. And then as new countries came in, you'd have a C pool and you could expand kind of further down, right? Now, the reasons for this are kind of a couple. One, it cuts down on the number of WCF events. So the WCF has to run less events. It still leaves a path for any country to get to a world's in a season. So you'd set it up so the C's would be before the B's, before the A's. So if you won your C's, you could, in theory, then go up through the B's up to the A's. So no country is being blocked out of qualifying for a world's. And it also means that more countries participate in each year's world championship, right? And I think that was one of the things I liked about the, the mixed doubles is you had a lot more teams in there. And so you kind of got to see a little bit more action from countries like Hungary. And you also then have a clearer promotion relegation system. Because right now, to be honest, the promotion relegation is kind of tied to, ha- it's like not a very clear system, right? It's like, you, unless you're playing really close attention, it's not clear which zone gets more teams and then what happens in each zone each year. So this is also like not regional. So if Asia Pacific really takes off and they have X number of teams, they get six teams out of the Asia Pacific, say in the future, it's not tied to some kind of regional cap, which I think it's getting harder and harder to defend, right? And so in theory, if Canada has an off week, um, they could get relegated too, right? And it's not likely they would fall right now below the top 12 in the world, say, at a world championship. But part of the drama at the Women's World Championship was they were on the bubble, right? That Einerson had to basically win out for Canada to make the Olympics. So I think that kind of bubble system, that promotion system works in terms of making the event, not just about the eventual winner, but creating a lot of competitions within competition. What I don't like about that is that you could wind up with a world championship that is, you know, the US, Canada, and 18 European teams. I don't like the idea of not having you know, automatic slots for the, for the, for the Asia Pacific teams. Yeah, I, I guess I think I could see that argument a decade ago. I don't, I just don't see it now. I, I can't see Japan, Korea, China falling below the top the top 16 anymore, right? 
And to be honest, the best the best evidence for that's the juniors, which already runs on this system. And you know, the Asian Pacific teams have done very well in the juniors in the last last five mm-hmm. six years, right? And it's actually the countries that have fallen down. Lately, it's been the USA has got a team in the B pool. Scotland's got a team in the B pool. Sweden fell down. Like a lot of the traditional powers have fallen down because there's a bit of risk there, right? And so. As the pool gets deeper, it makes these championships a lot more kind of risky. And I, I don't, th- I think you'll have full global representation, especially if you expand to sixteen teams, right? That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. It, it lets a few more of these, it lets the Estonias and the Latvias, the teams that are just below, have a few more bites at the apple and get that experience too to let them raise their profile to maybe get some funding from their national Olympic committees, right? I think it expanding the worlds a little bit. Keeping the Olympics very exclusive and then having a clearer pyramid again, I think will help grow the sport. Yeah, I think, yeah, if you move it to somewhere between 16 to 20 teams and you could still run your, you could still run a pool system and still get it done in a week. Um, I, I, I would be interested to hear what the, what like the emerging countries would, would prefer. Do they prefer going to Euros or going to the Pacific Asia Championship or would they prefer um, like complete, worldwide relegation especially when it comes to travel i i mean as a kind of as someone in an emerging country i think the one tournament a year as opposed to multiple a year is kind of a big cost saving and the big the big mess we've had lately in the last cycle has been this world qualification right which which mm-hmm. adds another cost to a lot of teams to a lot of countries that don't really have the funding and you yeah. basically saw that with the first year they ran it where a lot of countries opted out yeah, because they couldn't afford to get to they couldn't afford to get to New Zealand, and it wasn't worth it because, in some cases, they had already qualified for the Olympic qualification. Yeah, and what you can do with this is you can just rotate the zones every year, every every year, right? So America's mm-hmm. gets it against the A, the B, and the C in successive years, and the A, B, and Europe. And- yeah. So basically, every region has an event every year, and every third year they get an A event. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's not going to, that's not going to work. Why not? Because Canada has to host either the men's or women's in alternating years. Oh, well, you can, they can work that out. There's TV, (laughs) there's money. They'll sort that part out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The one we've, the one we've talked about literally three times before. Go ahead. (laughs) Ryan's bored of this, but it's the Elam ending, right? So for people who haven't heard this before, it's from basketball. And so basketball and curling got the same problem, right? And so basketball, the big problem is the end of the game. There's a lot of fouls, a lot of ticky-tacky plays. The flow of the game gets messed up as the team ahead basically tries to run down the clock. Same thing in curling. The team ahead basically tries to peel its way to victory, right? And so curling's attempt to solve this is with the free guard zone or now banning the tick shot. And I think the problem is curling favors defense it's easier to hit than it is to draw. And anytime you remove a stone from play, that stone can never come back to score. It's just logical. And you can't, short of changing the laws of physics or allowing stones to bounce back into play off the backboard, you're not going to fix that problem, right? So there's two ways to change behavior we don't like. There's the carrot and there's the stick, right? So for the last 30 years, curling has tried the stick, banning peels, adding more stones to the free guard zone, banning the tick shot, right? Saying, don't do this, don't do this, to try to force people to play offense. 
I think it's time to try the carrot, which means you incentivize offense as opposed to punish as opposed to punishing defense. So the Elam ending in basketball, what they do is they stop the game clock with four minutes left and then set a point target of eight and the first team to score the point total. So it's basically plus eight of the point total. So the score the leading team has a hundred points to ninety-two. It's the first team to 108 that wins the game. And so that that then forces both teams to try to score their way out, and it guarantees the game will end on a scored basket as opposed to a foul or basically the clock being run down, right? So in curling, I would say that after the sixth end, we add two points to the total of the leading team, and whichever team scores that total first wins the game. And that then forces the team that's leading to pursue offense because they know they have to score two more points. And a deuce is the thing you're shooting for if you have the hammer. So the next time they have the hammer, you know they're going to try to be scoring. If they don't have the hammer, they're going to try to be forcing to kind of get the hammer back and win over defense. And it ensures the game will end up on a team winning on a winning shot, on kind of scoring something rather than a miss, right? So there's no concessions. Take that out of the game. It ends the whole debate about how long a game should be because it could go seven. It could go eight. I guess if people wanted to keep peeling, it could go 20. But basically, you change the way teams think by focusing them on trying to score out to win the game as opposed to running the other team out of stones. So all I'm saying, because I know I've brought this up a lot, is I would love to see a, a competitive bond spiel test this out just to see how it plays out. I don't think we can rewrite the real book right away, obviously, but they're trying it a little bit in basketball. I'd like to see a similar approach taken here as opposed to to kind of arguing about banning something else or adding more stones to the free guard zone or kind of making the FTZ more complicated. Let's try changing the incentive structure and saying you've actually got to score points to win the game rather than kind of run your opponent out of stones. Someone please do this just so that Jonathan <laughs> can it up. Like Bowling Green, right. Bowling Green, Fort Wayne, Charlotte, some of you U.S. clubs that run a cast spiel once a year, please just do this. Just try it. Just call, call Jonathan. I'll come. I'll pay my own way. Have him. Yeah. Just so that we can, just so that we can move on to something else because (laughs) I just, I I think that the team with offense is still going to bail early if they think the deuce isn't there and we're going to wind up with like five blanked ends. You think so? All right. I don't think so, but there you go. All right. What do we got next, Ryan? We don't know yet. That's it. You have no other ideas. I'm out of ideas. All right. I'm out of time, man. We're not getting... This was an episode kind of like Seinfeld. It was an episode about nothing, and we still talked for an hour and 15. Wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so let us know what you thought of some of our wish list ideas. Some of them are far-fetched. Some of them are definitely far down the line, like me wanting to play in the seniors here in, in 13 years. Uh, and let us know what's on what's on your curling wish list, um, either for you personally or for the pros that we watch on TV. We love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach out to us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast, um, where I'm usually saying stupid stuff. Uh, you can even find us on Instagram and Facebook at Rocks Across the Pond. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please uh, tell a friend. That's how we grow. That's how we get to share our love of this great game. And it's the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. So thank you so much. We hope to hear from you. And uh, we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>